Is it still snowing by you, actually, by the way? Snow has stopped, but it is starting to melt. It's still there in like big packs. Mm. Is it still snowing in London? No, it's it's completely gone. It's like it never happened. It's just all slush and sadness right now. <laughs> I didn't get to I didn't get to throw a single snowball. I didn't get to make a single snowman. Oh, it was it was absolutely heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. We made a giant snowman in the park and then we destroyed it. Oh, I'm so jealous. It was amazing. so jealous. Yeah, Apparently, was, though, <laughs> the snow that was falling is called champagne types, champagne dust snow because it's so cold that the flakes are teeny tiny and it's harder to make snowmen out of it. Really? Which is why when people were sharing pictures of snowmen, so many of them like are freaky looking. <laughs> they just fall apart. And Abominations. Not, yeah. And the BBC actually went ahead and did like an interview with a, a nano meteorologist who explained why the snowballs Christ. are crap this year. <laughs> it's a poor vintage of yeah. snowmen. Did I ever tell you my snowball story? It's not the sex story about snowball, is it? No, that was a different one. That was a different. Okay. One. Shh, 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 shh. Do I no, have to uh, teach you what a snowball is, or do you know what it is? <laughs> I don't know what it's, what. Oh, you, when you have snowballs? No, that's blue balls. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> what is it? What are you teaching me? Uh, it's when you give someone and Christ, they f- and then Christ, I'm, you, I'm you, beeping you, all this. You f- them I'm and beeping you put this back into. Beeping this. This is all being beeped. My parents listen to this. This is being beeped. Well, I'm beeping everything you're saying. Jesus. I learned it it from... Beeping, beeping all this. Can I tell my snowball story? Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, I used to read Calvin Calvin and Hobbes comics. And in one of the comics... That explains why you turned turned out the way you did. I did, yeah. And I have an imaginary tiger friend. But um, uh, Calvin, he he had this idea to prank this girl Susie on the street where he took a snowball from the winter, put it in his freezer, kept it for six months and was going to throw it at her during the summer. <laughs> um, which I thought was a brilliant idea. So I thought I would do the same thing. So when it snowed as a kid, I took a, a lump of snow, put it in the freezer for six months and I took it out. I was going to throw it at my dad. But because it was in the freezer for six months, it just turned rock hard. So when I threw it at my dad, I was like hitting him with a very cold rock in the back of the head. <laughs> so you basically just threw a really hard lump of ice I at th- your dad's I head. Th- when I was eight, seven years old, eight years old, yeah, I just threw a really cold rock at the back of my dad's head. So That's really mean. How did it's really it? mean. Apart from in the back of the head. I think he said, ouch. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck little bastard. <laughs> yeah. So dad, tw- dad listens to this. So 20 years later, I wanted to say sorry for that. And dad, if you don't remember... It's because I hit you very hard in the back of the head. That's, that's where you got that scar. Uh, now that you're not snowed in, Steve, I assume you've been able to go out and get me a whole bunch of news to bring back and present to me. That's how news works. Yes, uh, I went and fetched it. Um mm-hmm. So let me try and remember what I scribbled down on the back of my hand before we started recording. <laughs> it, it's already been washed away by the sweat because I'm still very nervous about podcasting. <laughs> Who, uh, yeah, me too. I genuinely am. <laughs> Every time we start. <laughs> the Germans have a government, finally. Hooray. God, yeah. How long has it been? Five months since Five the election. Five months? Jesus Christ. I yeah. always assumed that Germany has their shit together. That's what everyone else assumed, and it kind of freaked everyone out when they had the election and turned out to be just as fucked up as every other democracy in the Western world. Man, Christ. But, um, but they're they doing did, okay so, now. Uh, kind of. The same government that everyone voted against is now back in, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, co- the grand coalition between Merkel's... Is that the Jamaican coalition? No, the Jamaican coalition didn't work. That was going to be ah. that was going to be Merkel's party with two teeny tiny parties, the Greens and the Liberals, mm-hmm. but they didn't want to do it. and um, The Liberals specifically said, nah. 
So they're, they, the, the Greens and the Liberals are back in opposition where they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is now the left-right coalition again. So it is the big uh, centre-right Merkel's party, the CDU, with the SPD, the centre-left party, who had their worst ever election result in the last election. But they were the only government that could get itself together without going back for a vote. So they did a deal. And mm-hmm. yesterday, the members of the SDU voted, no, not the SDU, whatever, the SPD, they mm-hmm. voted to accept going into coalition government again. So Okay. And so should, there, does this mean that, like, what does this mean now that they have a fully functioning, coherent government? Is there stuff they can now get along with that they've been postponing? Like, what happens next? Yeah, well, like, no major decisions have been able to be made in Germany for the past five months because there was, like, Merkel was there as the chancellor and her ministers, but they were caretakers. Right. So whenever this happens a, a bit in governance when parliaments have to try and get governments together. It happens in Ireland, happened in the UK a few times when they had to stretch it out. But you're not allowed, you're like, you technically you are allowed to make big decisions, but it's considered really bad form because you're now going minister and you have to try and get, like, a proper government together and voted by the parliament. Mm. So that should happen early this week in the Bundestag. And then, yeah, they can get back to normal. And then we'll see what the voters think about that in the next four years. The... Cool right-wing party that everyone's afraid of alternate Germany they are now the main opposition party oh really so they get a lot they're going to get a lot more formal attention in this German another, politics this is another populist movement yeah they're the anti-immigrant party mm. in Germany so we'll see how that goes okay China have gone and pretty much declared themselves a dictatorship like, like formally outwardly kind. put out a press release kind of thing well they're they have a follow-up mini conference that comes after the main conference and they're going to agree to President Xi's request that term limits be removed from the rules. So this is part of um, his consolidation of power that we talked about before, where he's... Yeah, yeah. but that was... I, I didn't even expect this to happen. I thought he would just appoint someone to take the presidency and he would like rule from the background, like Putin did before, mm-hmm. when yeah, for like four years you had President Mendeleev, I think his name was, while Putin was the prime minister. Mm-hmm. I thought Xi was going to do something like that. Mm-hmm. But no, he's like, feck it, I might as well just stay in charge now myself. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, he still has five years left on his normal term. Where, but after that five years, he can be reinstated. He can be, he can, yeah, just stay in power essentially indefinitely until he dies. Wow, Christ! Yeah, and how is that being received? Uh, people are kind of shocked. Um, so, in the nineties and two thousands, the Western world gave China lots of trade deals and investments, thinking that the more money they put into China and the more um, developed it gets economically that that'll turn around and result in a democracy because that's how they thought the theory worked. But mm-hmm. that has now just been entirely debunked and China is just presenting itself as an alternate way of doing things. You don't have to have one of them messy democracies and end up with a president like Trump. You can mm-hmm. do what China does or what Russia does and have a, a dictator in charge and still make loads of money. Yeah, and life will be simpler. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you get to lock up your podcasters if you don't like them. Is that... Wait, are, yeah, well, I mean, be worried. Uh, no, we don't live in China. <laughs> I know, but extradition is a thing. <laughs> I don't think the Irish and UK podcast extradition is definitely a thing. <laughs> if it isn't, it is now. You just gave him an idea because, of course, <laughs> President Xi listens to this podcast. It's called PodX. <gasps> PodX would be a great name for a podcast. <laughs> What's it about? It's about so it's a fictional serial style podcast uh, uh, where. We have been extradited, and but we managed to bring our Zoom recorders with us, and we're no, we're on the run. That's it. We're on the <laughs> we're run on the from run. the Chinese authorities who want to yeah. 
They want to pod access. No, they want to pod access. Pod access. <laughs> it sounds like a new kind of car. Mm-hmm. Patent pending. <laughs> What's the next news story? Um, I suppose Ireland kind of completely affected up itself up when the snow came. I don't know. Most countries in the world, whenever snow comes, they, they kind of get on with things. Whenever they just deal f- with it competently. Yeah. Whenever a flake of snow lands in Ireland, the entire country shuts down. Yeah. So we had scrambles before the snow was coming because there was a good bit of warning about the storm. And uh, people got all the bread out of the shops and put it into their houses. Legally. <laughs> and people never buy that bread normally. No. Like, no one, no one consumes that much bread in Ireland. Absolutely not. <laughs> But um, all the shelves were empty and people were like attacking the bread delivery guys as they were like trying to get the bread into the shopping centre. They were grabbing it off the trolley. It's like Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Bread. Dawn of the Bread. (laughs) And it turned out that because it was like a proper blizzard and Irish people are not good at driving in those conditions, the government tried to tell everyone to stay home and it worked except for in a part of West Dublin where people decided to rob a digger, drive up to the local little, rip mm. the side of the wall out of it, take all mm. the goods and also take the safe, take it into a housing estate, try and batter it open with the digger and then eventually got arrested when the guardie could get there. It was not a clandestine undertaking. No. <laughs> it was not discreet. It was not subtle in any way. It was entirely videoed and put on Snapchat and Twitter. So we all got to see it unfolding live. Yeah. Everything's geotagged. There's geotagged to time-coded evidence for all of this. The weird, the silliest thing is that some of the people who robbed the store put up photographs and selfies with their hauls of Harry oh and meat. Oh my God. So, I mean, it's just advertising for the guards to get you afterwards. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, so uh, Ireland didn't do too well, but now it's starting to melt and it can get itself together. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, tied into this is that some of the opposition parties are claiming that the government went too far in its PR um, attempt. And it's kind of tied into the launch recently of the Ireland 2040 programme where Mm -hmm. they decided how much money they're going to spend until 2040 and what kind of big projects. And there was a big ad campaign to go with it. And some of the ads in the newspapers were designed to look like articles. Ah, come on. And they specifically called out politicians in the government parties who aren't actually ministers as being tied into the plans, mm-hmm. uh, which is not, you're not supposed to do that because the people putting these ads into the papers are civil servants, supposed to be non-political. Sure. But it's this new strategic communications unit set up by the new Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, who is often accused of being more spin than substance. Yeah, and strategic communications itself <laughs> it, it, it sounds like a very loaded term. Yeah, but personally, I don't really mind it. Like the, the initiative is to try and get all the departments of government's like PR system under one roof. Mm-hmm. Which is a good idea because yeah. you don't want them contradicting each other or reissuing the same thing or wasting resources when they don't need to be used. Yeah. But also you shouldn't just use it you shouldn't just use this arm of governance to promote your own personal party because that kind of goes against the whole democracy thing, which isn't good. Of course. So the opposition parties also claim that Taoiseach went too far by constantly appearing on the cameras with a guard on one side and an army officer on the other talking about how he's going to protect everyone from the storm if they just follow his rules. Mm. Um, people were like, yeah, you're just you're just spinning and spinning and spinning. They're probably also scared because it seems to be working and Leo's personal poll numbers are pretty good. Mm-hmm. So they're afraid that he's going to be able to cash in in the next election, um, which he kind of has the choice to call whenever he feels like it. Wow. Man, being a politician sounds so fun and complicated. We should ask someone about that. We should ask someone about it. And we did. Hey. 
Uh, yeah, surprise. Surprise, except it's written in the title of the podcast you just downloaded. <laughs> but we spoke to a politician last week, Kate O'Connell from the Fine Gael Party. We did. Um, a fantastic politician, only elected mm-hmm. recently in the last election, um, but has been hitting the ground running and has gotten involved in loads of different big political issues, which she was very uh, nice enough to take time out on a Saturday afternoon from hip hop classes, I believe she's talked about. <laughs> <laughs> they're not her hip hop classes, they're her son's hip hop classes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, she just spoke to us about what it's like being a professional politician. So even though, yeah, she is Irish and the examples we use and we speak about are Ireland specific, um, they, they can be applied to, to anyone within the, or any, any kind of professional po- politician and, and in any country. So we talk about stuff like reconciling the greater good with local priorities, balancing life and politics and like being a female politician. So there's lots of really good stuff in there. Yeah. So don't run away from it if if you're not Irish or based in Ireland because it, it still will be relevant. You just, yeah, just basically imagine- the, only, the only things you need to understand a TD, Chuck the Dollar, they're a member of the Irish uh, Irish Parliament. Hey, you just answer the question. You don't have to yeah, play the interview go. now. <laughs> That's it. That's all the interview okay. is. Bye guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've definitely told you about him before. Yeah, you have on the show. Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> when the beer starts flowing. Quite often we record this while drinking alcohol. So no! yeah. yeah. I was thinking about it this time, but then yeah. I don't know. Well, I, I don't went, the rules are in the studio about getting drunk. I went to a tea circle the, the other night, assuming that tea meant wine, but didn't. Tea wasn't in quotes on the invite. No, <laughs> tea it was actual circle. tea. And were you just very incredulous the whole time you were there? Well, I'm just so disappointed I didn't drive. I was like, <laughs> why did I get a taxi? <laughs> so people just sat in a circle and drank tea? Well, there wasn't really a circle, but it was a group, but there was just tea, biscuits, oh. anyway. I see that some of the places when you go for the tea afternoon, you get the teapot and then you're like, oh no, but then you pour and it's actually like a margarita or something. No way. Oh. Yeah, in like the little porcelain pots. The next tea circle I'm doing. Do <laughs> I'll take a special I'll have tea. the porcelain tea. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you keep winking? This is your own tea. <laughs> okay, so we're rolling. We may as well actually start this. Yeah, let's get into it. Welcome, Kate O'Connell, TD. Thank you. Thank you very much. An actual politician. You were the first politician we've had on the show and we've been going for a year. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, so c- congratulations, I guess. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Richie didn't realise but it was actually a semi-intentional thing on my part that we'll talk about at the end, but your mm. reason was different as to why you, we, you weren't jumping up. Yeah, so the whole premise of the show is that for the past year, Steve's been teaching me about mm. politics because for 27 years I've been... Um, kind of ignoring it and ignoring it is is probably putting it lightly putting my fingers in my ears and going la 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 anytime politics came up that was probably more accurate but a year ago I decided no I need to actually learn about this stuff and and not be so scared around the subject I think it's called growing up I think that's the with growing what now (laughs) growing where now Uh, we're millennials Kate we don't do that Getting woke, I believe, is the new terminology. Was that, is that what it means now? I, I have no idea. Uh, but yeah, try, just just trying to stop being so scared by the subject of politics. But when it came to actually getting politicians on, I felt like politicians were like the embodiment of all the fear I had about politics. And so the, actually talking to a politician felt like a big, big leap. So we were hoping we could start the show by you explaining to us all the reasons why I shouldn't be afraid of you. <laughs> well, I might be considered by some people to be a scary politician. I might be considered to be an ab- not standard, but mm-hmm. um, I think I'm just a fairly run-of-the-mill individual. So <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. You don't like gain new superpowers and like scary abilities to read people's mind when you become a TD or anything like that? No, yeah. not yet anyway. Maybe uh, that comes with time. No. Maybe. Maybe. Kenny McGinley, I remember, he used to be able to tell everything that was going on when he looked around. Really? No. And, there, and there's, there, the, there was, wasn't a dev that used to be able to look into his heart? 
Is and, and able to know what the Irish people were oh, thinking. Right. He didn't need referendums. No. Oh, that's he just was able to look into his heart. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that takes a lot of legwork out of it, doesn't it? Sure, he wrote the Constitution <laughs> on a Sunday when he was at Mass, and that's pretty much why we have all the problems today. But that's what we are where we are. <laughs> <laughs> Foresight wasn't his superpower, though. It was just at the time reading it's, into people's hearts. If we just maybe looked into his heart and looked to the future as opposed yes. to how people were thinking, <laughs> we might be in a different place. <laughs> so, um, we thought that we would finally bite the bullet and ask on a politician and we could think of no more down to earth than normal politicians such as yourself to actually come in and explain to us and our listeners what is a professional politician, what you guys do. So we're actually going to start off just by saying what does a TD do when, like day to day? Yeah. Well, um, I suppose perhaps a first time TD and a second time TD may be different things. Mm. But for me, yeah. um, what do I do? So you, we, you we were start elected on, a couple of years uh, yeah, ago, first yeah. time. Two years in, yeah. uh, served in City Council, Dublin City Council before that, which is a completely different ballgame. So first thing is a TD is a full time job. Mm. Um, it's it it is it, it doesn't follow the normal Monday to Friday or anything, but. The way I work it is I use Monday for clinic work, you know, getting the week going. And then how I describe it at home is I fall down the rabbit hole on a Tuesday morning and I don't emerge till Thursday night. And even being a Dublin TD, that's the case. So um, we would we would kind of do 14, 16, perhaps 18 hour days, those three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then Friday, I try and leave it and the morning if I have to do a bit of radio and then I try to keep Friday afternoons for my children. Right. So, so and Saturdays possible. are for podcasting. Well, Saturdays <laughs> depends. Saturdays soccer and, and Gaelic uh, with Randall Gales and uh, Beachwood Rangers and um, Shut there's, up. Yeah, and there's, <laughs> there's hip hop and there's all sorts of things going on in our house on um, a Saturday morning. Hip hop. Hip hop. Um, well, we're, 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 we're a diverse group in our wow. house. <laughs> so, um, and when you yeah. say you have those long hours like those 14, 18 hour mm. days is that consistent or is that like a seasonal thing throughout the year there's it's, certain times that are far busier than others when or, the doll is sitting that's yeah. how it works okay. and we, we, we've we constantly used to fall into the trap at, at the beginning going next week will be easier yeah. <laughs> but it never is so you, you go in you go in on a Tuesday and you never know what's going to land or what way the week is going, going to going to turn out so from that point it's very interesting yeah. but from a family life because I have three young kids and, and a husband um, it's you just I suppose there's an acceptance there now that I'm really not available Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday, Thursday even though I live three kilometres from the dog wow. Was that a hard thing for your family to get on top of at the start? Well it wasn't it wasn't because um, like why I went into politics um, was I suppose largely to do with apart from the fact I was brought up in a, in a very political house the recession really affected me and I, I personally um professionally in my family life. So I kind of, I suppose the main reason I went into politics is because I always assumed when the crash was happening that they did know what they were at. And I always assumed that the person in charge never would have taken the job if he generally or she didn't know what they're at. And I was totally shocked when the crash happened at the disorganisation and how vulnerable we were as a state. So I suppose they were the intentions I went in, but I went in coming from 10 years working in business 
um, through recession. So I have been doing 16 hour days for 10 years running my businesses. So it wasn't really that different mm. um, in our in our lives at home before politics. The routine would be myself, and my husband work 12 hour days in retail, nine to nine, um, a 30 to nine in my case. Um, he his business was further away from home. We'd arrive home around quarter past nine. We'd sit down and have our dinner at quarter to ten at night. Very Mediterranean. That was the only way we could have a, well. the, only, the only the only way we could have a meal together. Yeah. And um this would this would would happen um day on day after day. So from from I suppose a work point of view, is the work um, any more difficult? Probably not. But there is an invasion into your personal life that obviously you wouldn't have as the local pharmacist. Of course. Um, um, so that's kind of difficult. Or the mother of a hip hop artist. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to be, to be. So, you know, um, it, it is different um, and it does sort of filter into your personal life. Um, I know some people would arrive into my husband in his job. He's a community pharmacist as well. And, you know, take him on about what I said on the radio. Really? And he's like, I don't listen to her on the radio <laughs> ever. I listen to her at home. Yeah. I don't care what she says on the radio. Right. Uh, nothing to do with me or some maybe government policy mm-hmm. to take him on about. And he's just, you know, regular guy, community pharmacist. He's like, mm-hmm. I have no idea what Fine Gael's policy on this is. <laughs> just <laughs> really. Yeah, so yeah. from that point of view, it, it does. But then again, there's positives. I mean, children find politics very interesting. And they get a bit of crack out of it. Now, my children are young. Mm. Probably in a few years, they're going to be completely mortified <laughs> to seeing with me. In yeah. like, you know, so we'll see how it goes. Mm. And what do you mean they seem they, they find it interesting? They just find the glitz and the glamour of of like all the different photo ops and events that you have to go to and podcasts. Well, no, they can be very tuned in. I mean, I was bringing two guys to my own lad and another lad to soccer this morning. And um, my my fella said to his friend, well, mommy's very busy this week. She's changing the law. <laughs> I, I <laughs> and, would be that kid. I and would it was totally just so funny. And the two of them in the back of the car. And um, it's to do with the Cancer Act that I'm working on at the minute. They, they, they're supposed to try and um, stop people being taken advantage of um, when they're in, uh, suffering from cancer. There's a lot of advertising going on for oh, yeah. um, unproven medications oh, and that. Really? So I sort of explained it to my seven-year-old in the simplest possible terms and then to hear him explaining it yeah. to his friend in his version of it, that was quite different to what my I'd said to yeah, him. My mum's curing cancer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Basically, it was, it was a totally different take on it. But you do, you know, you get a bit of crack out of it. Yeah. And, you know, kids like that, they, they love seeing themselves. They were actually talking... One time on a Friday, I had them in the doll um, on Friday afternoon. And then when you saw the six o'clock news, there was three of them fighting over ice cream on the steps of the doll <laughs> behind, the, behind the interview. And they still talk about it because it was just blurry out of shop. And you could see three lads fighting, <laughs> three little lads fighting on the steps of the doll behind some serious interview by Michal Lahan. Sure you know? I think that's a metaphor for something. <laughs> I don't, yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Can we talk a little bit about actually that the, the work you're doing on that um, cancer about of course, the, of course, yeah, yeah. I, I was completely unaware of anything of this. Yeah, so I suppose it's 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 been called the Cancer Act. Some people are referring to it as the Quack Act or the, the <laughs> Fact Act, but it's called the Cancer Act. And um, I suppose the genesis of it is is that um, in 1939 in the UK they brought in the Cancer Act, and when cancer was being discovered as an illness, um, obviously there was a huge amount of scaremongering around it mm. because obviously was rapid, it was very much untreatable um, back in the day and um, I suppose 
opportunistic people started targeting sick people and selling them um, dangerous substances, performing operations, blah, 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 back in 1939. So they brought this in in the UK, but because it was after our state was formed, we nev- never actually did anything like this. So it, we became as a country, and uh, we have become as a country, somewhere where this just totally goes unnoticed. So if you're a pharmacist or a doctor or a nurse, you are governed by your regulatory body. Mm. And like the, the, um, the medical council and the pharmacy society have statutory footing. However, if one of you guys decides to take a unit down the road and put a big sign in the window going, I'll cure your cancer with this nettle and turf extract, you can do that mm. and you can sell it. And um, I suppose with search engine optimization now, it's become a real issue because the first thing people normally do when they get a diagnosis is to Google it. Yeah. And next thing, they get targeted with all of these treatments. Yeah. And there's often issues around, well, in some cases, the treatments don't actually do any good or any harm and perhaps leave people less well off. Mm. But in some cases, with certain types of diets being used in conjunction with cancer treatments, that there can be serious effects. So... What I'm working on um, is to try and, and deal with this issue. I'm working with the Irish Cancer Society, various research bodies, oncologists. So this is not just me and my own. This is something that's required. And I'm hoping to have a nice, sort of tidy, neat little bill um, ready to go next few weeks. Wow. And so what's the process from the start, the inception of that idea in your mind to, to work on this to getting that bill submitted? How long are we talking? Yeah, but see, when you come from my background, I mean, I'm a pharmacist. Yeah. So, I mean... I'm now a legislator right. and my only experience in law is pharmacy law. So you, you, you meet somebody from the bills office in, in Leinster House, you tell them your idea and... Um, Are they civil servants? Um, sometimes they're contracted in and sometimes they're full-time staff, but they're law people, they're and generally they're barristers. they to go and talk yes, to. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, and I think my understanding is no matter how ridiculous your idea is, they're kind of obliged to try and help you with it because you are the legislator. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you must be there for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> so they work through it and then you come back. Now, we are putting a lot of groundwork into ours because I want this to be nice and tidy. I don't want it to cause any sort of ripple effects and I want to deal with this unintended consequences thing that people always talk about. I want to deal with that in advance of it going to the doll floor. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are in it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It was just. It's just nice to get these little glimpses into an actual tangible thing that like a TD does. Throughout well, the day. well, that's my first bill, and yeah. like my, my at the minute, um, I suppose I've seen bills come through the process of the committee, and and the and the and the Dolan has spoken on other people's bills and amendments, but now it's my one, which is hmm. for a certain amount of responsibility attached. You don't want to be wasting people's time. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't. Some people have no problem wasting <laughs> people's time. I don't. And do you encounter any sort of opposition or or? pushback in any way and, and these kind of things like what are the challenges when you're trying to push something like this I suppose through? the challenges are that we have a certain cohort of people that are self-identifying as quacks right. I'm not suggesting that they're quacks um, or charlatans so <laughs> um, if people some people are a little bit worried um, if they are running um, businesses um, and making profiting out of selling um, products that have no um, scientific footing some of those people are very uneasy and they've been yeah. in contact with you about it yeah, some of them have been in contact but like that none of them have seen the bill yet right, so right. Um, a lot of it's speculative at this stage yeah. um, I'm, but there was one suggestion I was going to ban holy water <laughs> 
but I'm not. No. Yeah, That's good to you know. You're delighted. Here first, guys. You must be delighted, lads. <laughs> I've got three bottle leaders yeah, of it right here. I don't go anywhere without it. There's gift wrap holy water that we're going to give out to the end as a thank you. Good to know that we can. Um, so you mentioned that one of the reasons you got involved was that you've seen the recession happen and you wanted to be one of the more competent people going in to try and fix things when these things went wrong compared to who was there before. But um, you mentioned as well that you come from a political background. Would that have influenced why you chose Fine Gael when you were coming into it? Very much so. Mm. Um, my, my father ran for Fine Gael and was a councillor um, about 15 years ago. And my maternal grandfather ran in 1967 for Fine Gael. So we would be died in the wool Fine Gael. Um, but like that, when I say political household, um, we would have been can- canvassing for Fianna Gael with our mother as children. My father was civil servant, so he did not canvass and wouldn't canvass and wouldn't get involved. Um, he wouldn't even count Churchgate collection money um, at home because but she was very, very political and we were very much involved in that. But we suppose we grew up in a quite kind of an unusual setup um, in that we're very much rural based. Um, I grew up in a house with no television and we were very self-sufficient as a family. So very rural, like we grew all our own vegetables. We slaughtered all our own meat at the time. That's, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, but, but, <laughs> Richie, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Don't, don't, do, don't do it in Dublin <laughs> 6 anyway. <laughs> but, um, you know, so we, I grew up in that sort of environment. And now looking back at it, I suppose it probably was a little bit different to the way other people grew up. But I didn't know any different at the time. Big family, six of us born within 16 years. But education and um, political discourse and conversation and debate were a huge part of our lives. Mm. Um, And um, then I suppose I went away to the UK um, to study pharmacy. So um, I sort of missed out on when things were really booming here. Mm. But I came back um, about 2005 and uh, set up my businesses and I couldn't believe that the foundations, I suppose, of everything the country was built on and just went. And um, when you're working in any job in a local retail business, be it the pub or the deli or the pharmacy or the GP surgery or whatever, we were actually at the coalface of people's personal problems. Mm. And I remember joking with, um, in the nicest possible way, with an orthopaedic surgeon one day going, you know, there's there's actually a, a psychologist in all of us these days because people be coming in for whatever tablet and next thing you'd have tears about their business gone or their home going or their marriage or their children emigrating. So we all took a personal hit dealing with that. But I was very much aware of that the, the recession didn't, that it affected cross society. Some of the wealthiest people became very poor overnight um, and some people who were very, very comfortably off became very badly off. And then the heartbreak of losing families to, or children to other countries having to emigrate. So, And that brought back very, very hard, hard things, memories to people who were in the 80s in, mm. the, in this country. They couldn't believe that after all we'd seen that we we're exporting our, our, our graduates again. And again, I feel very strongly about that. Um, I We all were educated um, at... Um, paid for by the state and I have an issue with people being educated by the state and then just emigrating out of the country. You know, I have two siblings <laughs> that are gone to Australia yeah, yeah. and I just think it's it's tragic that we would lose people 
that are are highly educated and um they're such a loss to yeah. to, to the state. Yeah. I'm 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 in London right now. I just came back from this recording and but these are conversations. You feel bad. I, yeah. <laughs> this whole time just like sinking lower. Yeah, get out. But no, these are conversations I have with all my friends in London. It's the same thing. It's it's there are a certain amount of people who, who do want to be there like for their own reasons, but there's a lot of people who do want to come back and are constantly looking at job boards and even Steve and I talk about this a lot, like going on daft and looking at the housing situation and, and what it would be like to come back and rent here and it's an actual huge put off to see that there's nowhere to rent in Dublin and it immediately stops you from coming back but yeah, yeah there's a plenty of plenty of people who do feel guilty and do want to come back but just don't feel like it's read their time yet Yeah it's completely different if you're going to London or Australia because you're there's a particular skill set you're trying to acquire a particular yeah. experience that's a different thing but if mm. but if you know you want to be in Ireland and the only reason that you can't come back is because there's nowhere to live. You know, now with with unemployment um, down, you know, there are jobs in general out mm. there. But um, that's something I think we have to, to make, I suppose, to rectify that it's it's attractive and there's places for people to right, live yeah, and work. And have families if people want to do that, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. The last week, the government brought out the Ireland 2040 plan. I think mm-hmm. it was called the 300 page document and how we plan to run the country for the next couple of years. Um, do you think the the provisions for housing and that are going to be good enough to try and get the, the city of Dublin especially back up on its feet so maybe some of these people could come back? Or do you think something might need to be done a bit sooner and quicker? Well, the, the plan um, is, I, I I think you need to plan. Um, I think just willy-nilly going along and, and depending on electoral cycles to determine um, how we plan on a macro level is... I suppose you need to plan on a macro level and it needs to transcend politics. And I think some of the mistakes of the past are because of poor planning. Dublin can't continue the way it is. Um, my own view is it has to go up and go high, high up. Um, it's it's all fine and, and when you're when you're young and you're in your early twenties and you have and you've en- you have the benefit of youth and you've energy, and perhaps you don't have children. And you can spend an hour in a car either side. And I commuted for, for when I was younger uh, to work. And it took nothing out of me because I'm sure I, I was young. But when you have a family, you need to be able to spend, I suppose, time at home. It's it's very challenging if you're commuting from, for example, Kinnegad to Dublin and one one parent is working perhaps locally and you're not arriving until eight, nine at night mm-hmm. from your job. It's unsustainable and yeah. like life's for living, you know, and you only get one go at it. Yeah. And I think politics should be about making people's lives better. It's as simple as that. That's what I see as my role is making people's lives better. So I see the national or, or the Project 2040, I see it as trying to address that, trying to make it sustainable for people to to live um, in wherever they want. But in Dublin, obviously we have to go up because the sprawl is making it impossible for people to commute in. And also we've won, we're going to have one million more people in the country. And as we know, we have a housing crisis. So we need to really plan um, to deal with this to the future. Mm-hmm. So I'm very pro it. Now, obviously, as somebody, I consider myself to be from originally the middle of Ireland. I'm from Pretty much the triangle between Athlone, Tullamore and Mullingar oh, is exactly where I'm from. Right in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when um, people were speaking about this line being drawn from Dublin to, to Galway, although I'm a, a South Dublin TD, um, I very much was kind of thinking the same way as those people. Mm. I don't see Limerick as the centre of the country. I see um, Athlone as the centre of the country. Um, 
that said, um, there's no point making promises that we're going to make mm-hmm. um, Athlone a, set, a city. It's for urban development, but um, it's a step-by-step process. And it's about targets. It's not about limitations. And um, obviously, all plans need to be reviewed. And this plan, my understanding is every three years, it's going to be reviewed because I did speak, I'd be um, very friendly with Maria Bailey's on the housing committee and my, I was saying to her, you know, what if a large multinational just doesn't want to go to Athlone or Sligo? Yeah. What do we do? I said, what if they want to go to Tullamore? She said, oh no, they'll be facilitated and then in time we will we will um, review how the, the project is going, Project 2040 is going and it will be amended um, along the way. But we can't go on the way we did in the past. The National Spatial Strategy brought in by Fianna Fáil did not work waste of time, mm. tried to keep everybody happy and did nothing. So, um, or very little. So, um, we need to learn from the mistakes of the past and plan for the future so we don't end up with the backside falling out of the country like it did the last time. <laughs> you mentioned the uh, the point that Dublin needs to go up to stop the sprawl and everyone in theory is always very, very in favour of that. But whenever it comes to seeing planning permission for a building next door to you that has to go up 10 storeys, it seems to be that people change their mind and it's like, oh, no, no, I didn't mean here. Here, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's it's the, the NIMBYism. Not, yeah. The NIMBYism, not in my backyard. Um, as a TD who's supposed to look after a particular district, how often do you find yourself coming to that kind of challenge of, you know that it's for the best interest of maybe the country at large, but it may have a negative effect to the people in the local area. Do, do you think, how do, how do you reconcile the fact that you need to also support the people who want to make their area better while also knowing that some sometimes it has to happen in your backyard? I sort of abide by the principle of the greater good. So I, I look at things practically and try to be as objective as possible. And, um, you know, once it's inside the canals and the planning is right and the design is right and there's nothing untoward about it, I think negotiation um, and um, just chatting to people um, does a lot. Um, I think any sort of adversarial way of going about things, you know, getting involved in rows is not the way forward. But um, I think... You know, you have to try. I try my best as a politician to always operate. What What is the greater good here? That's really how the principle on which I base most things. I try not to get too involved in individual cases like that because I, I really don't see it as my role. Mm-hmm. And how often do you have to tell people that when they come to you asking for help? Not so much. No? Um, planning issues that we, we, we'd be involved in would be more... Um, you know, rear access to someone's lane or something like that. And like that, equally, I would look at those objectively. If someone wants to bring their wheelie bin out the back, not just through the, their kitchen, I mean, that's a reasonable enough, expe- you know, thing, expectation for people mm. to have. So just, I, I look at every case individually and try not to get people too excited about things, you know. And when you, you said you came from a business background and now you find yourself working in politics, this whole other dimension of talking to the public and convincing them or sending them an idea or hearing their thoughts like was this something that you were you were worried about before you started were you aware of like how how was that part of the job well, been you see, for you I studied pharmacy in the UK and it was a very practical based course so um, we actually got a lot of training in talking to people it's okay. very very important when someone walks into community pharmacy same as a doctor's surgery generally what they ask you first is not what's wrong with them sometimes there's deeper issues going on part of our job what we call responding to symptoms, pulling information out of people and speaking to people on terms that they understand and modifying your tone, your language and your approach depending on the sort of person you're dealing with or the the circumstances you're dealing with. And I suppose in politics, it's quite similar. Mm. Never considered it um, until I was in it. But um, 
you know, you try to be unambiguous, try to be clear, try to be honest. And um, I think they're all things we should all be trying to be. But mm. um, the, the skills from being a community pharmacist actually um, sort of transfer well to politics. But also the, sort of the research element and, and as the the understanding of how scientific data is collated, how decisions are made, um, how research is done. Um, all of that actually gives you a very good background um, when you're going into health committees. So when you hear things like peer-reviewed data, you know what mm. that means. When... Um, absolute rubbish is put before you, you're generally able to to decipher that it's rubbish. So there are skills that I learned through my my job, um, that my, my, my original job that transfer to politics. But like that, I mean, I worked in loads of jobs. Um, I worked as a cleaner in Tullamore Hospital, care assistant. I worked, ran a restaurant at the weekend when I was college in, in the UK. So... Those sorts of things also help too. Mm. Um, I've an underst- I have always had, because there's no point having the best surgeon in the world if you've got the worst cleaner in the world because yeah. everyone's going to die of MRSA no matter how good a surgery is. So, yeah. I mean, so I have an appreciation of, of that and also from working in the restaurant um, or running it, um, it, um, it helps you, I suppose, organise people and... Um, Get, your, get get things, I suppose, streamlined. So the skills I brought from all those things that I suppose help politics. Life helps politics, I suppose. And hopefully politics helps life. Ooh. Not so sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've mentioned, so we, we talked already about how you're bringing the uh, the cancer bill to the doll and you've mentioned sitting on a committee. You're on the health committee, is it? And you were on the Eighth Amendment committee. I was. Um, I've been on actually all contentious committees in this whole <laughs> sitting. Like I don't bingo. think I've, I've been on the I, uh, the Slauncher Care Ten Year Plan for Health, um, the Water Committee, oh. and the um, which obviously is very contentious, and um, the Eighth Amendment Committee, and there were three special committees, um, and I sit on the regular Health Committee as well. Do you want to explain for the uninitiated what a committee would be and how is it different to the work that you'd be doing maybe in the constituency or in the Dell Chamber itself? So the committees. Um, I suppose, run alongside the departments as such. So they generally depends on the scheduling, depends on the workload. We'd have a huge um, health meeting every Wednesday morning. So if something was particularly topical, um, it might be brought up as discussion. We'd have quarterly meetings with the HSC and the Minister for Health would be in and we could discuss questions we'd put in that perhaps we hadn't satisfactory answers to. And we would discuss things, policy issues. So the national maternity strategy is very big at the minute. Um, and um, we had the people from that in during the week. Um, so it's really, really interesting. Now, from my point of view, sometimes I feel because of my background, I get too into health and I get kind of pigeonholed in health. So that's why I... Do you volunteer. find you do that to yourself? No, no. (laughs) I think it it just happens organically. So that's why when the Water Committee, when everybody was like, couldn't think of anything worse than being on the Water Committee, I was like, I'll do that. (laughs) I'll do that. So I I brought a big box of documents on water to carry and I I, I basically nearly made myself an engineer by the end of the three months reading of it. But I really got into it and absorbed it and got, I um, I suppose, really enjoyed the process. and then obviously the Eighth Amendment Committee was a whole new ball game, cross party and people coming in on completely different positions, multiple positions and then working together 
to get a fairly unanimous report. A minority report, I know, was produced, but a, um, a lot of majority votes. So there was a huge amount of politics in that. There was a huge amount of, I suppose, negotiation, but also bringing people with you on issues. And it was probably the best example so far um, of cross-party collegiality. I mean, mm. you know, when you have myself and Lynn Ruan texting each other late at night or Claire Daly and on general policy ideas, we mightn't have much in common, but on mm. this one issue, we yeah. were very much able to work together towards a common goal, you know, so huge benefits and you make great friends too. And so the the um, Eighth Amendment is something we talk about on the show all the time. We had Tara Flynn in to do a special in this very studio and you, you seem to be very heavily involved with it. Is there anything you want to talk about that from you know, professional perspective about what it's been like to work on that and your hopes for, for how it'll how it'll continue on? I suppose my frustration probably during the 2016 election was that I was being told it wasn't an issue. But it, it's an issue, but it's not an issue people like to particularly talk about. Mm. You're not going to be very popular, especially a couple of years ago, if you went in out for dinner with people and you said, let's talk about abortion <laughs> for dinner. You know what I mean? It's not something people want to talk about. And should people have to talk about it either for that matter? You know, we don't go in for... None of us sit down for coffee with people and start talking about, you know, having our prostates if male examined or women mm-hmm. having, you know, inter- we don't talk about those things. Um, so you can understand the um, reluctance for people to talk about um, abortion and certain aspects of women's health. Also, we sort of have, I believe, a hangover from I suppose, the old ways in Ireland. We didn't talk about these things. So I think we've sort of breached some of those barriers now. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a popular issue to discuss within Fine Gael a couple of years ago. However, now it's um, hotting up for the referendum. Um, But um, it's amazing how you can bring people with you. And I suppose what I I got to understand was the the Eighth Amendment has been very divisive in in political circles. If you look back to 83 and Garrett, um, I mean, Garrett or, or, or Garrett Fitzgerald, you know, feeling that he had to do what he did because he didn't want to be branded as, you know, the the who he was going to have the, the pro-life at the organisation as they were known at the time, you know, hammering at Fine Gael. So historically, it has been very difficult for political parties. And that section of society um, that are against choice and have kept um, the Eighth Amendment as it is um, can be very vocal, and have been very vocal in the past. And that has probably been reflective in, 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 reflected in the people we have now in Leinster House because sometimes if you ran on that platform, that cohort of people was enough to elect you. There's a lot of fear around this issue. But I think that has been, that's dissipated um, recently. Um, and I think the Citizens' Assembly helped with that. Um, I think it was necessary for people to see how 99 ordinary people could look at evidence and deliver a report and then subsequently the committee um, delivering pretty much the same recommendations, more conservative one would ar- could argue. I've never seen as much attention put onto a committee as was put onto the Eighth Amendment Committee. It was like, it was just as important as all, all the other political issues on the nightly news. Yeah, and, because, but it is, it, 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 it's not a it's not black and white. So when something's not black and white, you have to explore the degrees of grey in between, and that took um, a lot of uh, work. And 
there's no point having experts in if you don't ask them the right questions. Mm. So there's a lot of work done um, to try and get the actual qualified experts to answer questions that I knew and many other people knew on the committee that the wrong answers were out there in, in the public domain. Um, issues like babies having heartbeats at three weeks. I mean, we've had experts saying that is not true, yet yeah. we are still listening yeah. to this on yeah. the airwaves. But the fact that we have, you know, former masters and maternity hospitals, current masters telling us this is not the case, experts in the field, that, that was discussed at length at the committee, those sorts of things. So... If you're going to still believe that, well, then you, you just don't want to be informed as far as I'm yeah. And some people don't want to be informed and that's yeah, fine. Yeah. But I was actually genuinely happy to see that something very rare happened, that politicians seemed to genuinely change their mind. Like there were some politicians at the start of the committee who would have been pro-life to put the mm-hmm. label on it. But then by the end, they were actually, OK, I've yeah. seen the evidence. My mind has been changed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was like, in particular, I know for my, my colleague and friend, Hildegard Nocton, she would have gone into the committee um, with a view and left it with another view but even still found had great dif- personal difficulty in voting certain ways even though the evidence was there but was big enough and brave enough to do that and there were other members of the committee like that too and um, and they were I mean these weren't plants these are real people who went in with a certain viewpoint and, and left um, just People don't, and even I found out something the other night. I didn't realise until I was at a, a repeal meeting in Ennis the other night um, that only four children have been adopted in Ireland last year. Really? Wow. Uh, yes. The way really? people were talking at the committee, it's where this was a widespread <laughs> practice. But also, I didn't realise that if, just for instance, I had a crisis pregnancy now and I have three children at home. Um, I'm paraphrasing what the lady said, the expert said the other night. But in order to give up that fourth child for adoption, I have to deem myself an unfit mother. So what happens to the other three at home? So this yeah. solution of adoption isn't as easy as, Not you know, signing the form and off you go, yeah. you know. So that it, I'm still learning in the process. And you guys obviously didn't know that either, Not you know, until I said Not it, you know. So I, I only learned that last Monday night. Um, wow. So there's just things that keep emerging. Um I, I suppose I hadn't considered things like viability um, mm. in the sense that in my head, because I have a friend that had a baby at 25 weeks gestation, so I kind of always thought it's about 25 weeks. But Fergal Malone from the Rotunda um, was very clear, it's nothing to do with weeks. Clearly it's nothing to do with weeks now that I think of it. If you had a triplet pregnancy, obviously, yeah. it's different than yeah, a single yeah. baby pregnancy. So, you know, viability is 500 grams. I never knew that. And I've had three children and all of that. And yeah. I found that out the community. I learned a lot. And I suppose the one thing is, I think the public want to learn about this too. I think any sort of suggestion the public don't care, not interested. I think they're all care and they yeah. all are interested. Because when you consider that we have, I'd estimate, at least 15 terminations a day between pills and people travelling, there's not one home in the country this hasn't touched. No matter what people say. Yeah. Now one home this hasn't touched. There's a daughter, there's a there's a neighbour, there's a girlfriend, there's a wife, there's whoever who's been in this situation. And I think that's bedding down into people's minds that it could visit their door uh, very, very soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that, even the abortion pills. I mean, that wasn't discussed at the Citizens' Assembly. And Judge Lafoy, um she came into the committee one of the first meetings and she said 
we didn't even discuss this because we didn't really know this was going on. Yeah. And again, as a community pharmacist, I didn't know what was going on. And I had, had um, a word with a senior uh, cabinet minister um, the other day at lunchtime and I explained to him that, you know, the risk here was that if we don't do something, we're going to have a girl probably under 20 ordering abortion pills with her mom or dad's credit card and taking them when she's far in excess of 12 weeks pregnant. And then we have a mess in our hands because you can often have a period even though you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. So just if, for instance, some girl had unprotected sex, she thought she was 12 weeks when she ordered the pills, but actually she was 18 weeks you'd have a partial miscarriage and you could have a very, very tricky situation medically. When I explained this to that senior minister, like he actually genuinely looked so concerned because I don't think he'd considered that. But sure, he's busy doing his own job right. you know, thinking about abortion pills. But um, there are the things that I suppose we have to be cognizant of that um, these things could happen and who's, who's going to be responsible then when we all know about it, you know? Yeah. What's it like to be in a political party? Good. Yeah, it's good. Um, it's good to have colleagues. It's good to have people to text and to bounce things off. Um, shared ideology, I suppose, but not necessarily like there be huge differences in views throughout Fine Gael on the Eighth Amendment, but also on other issues. Um, but it is good. It, it is good. I, I couldn't I couldn't imagine what it would like to be not in a political mm. party. Uh, and you have the support structures there. You have, you know, the, the press office and you have, if you want to do a training and things. So there is a, a comfort blanket, I suppose, in having um, a political party. For me, it's never caused me any trouble yet anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful caveat yeah. there. <laughs> um, one thing that's maybe... Well, I suppose it is a part of all democracies because you're going to have people maybe in, in the same party maybe looking at your seat in the primary in the States or in whatever, is it selections in the UK? But in Ireland, do you have multi-seat constituencies where you have to run against someone from your own party? Mm. Um, I don't I don't want to put you on the spot, but <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of a dynamic does that make when you're running with, with and against someone from your own party? Well, I suppose myself and Owen Murphy, Minister for Housing, very good relationship. Um See, geographically it suits us because Owen's from one side of the constituency and I'm from the other. Um, so there's a natural, I suppose, division there. Um, down the middle, we kind of have the Lewis line. <laughs> I'm moving. We're going to have to move the line soon. <laughs> I'll tell him about that. Um, I'm moving to the actual lines. We're going to have to shove him out to the Irish Sea. Um, but no, the, the organisation within the constituency kind of rules the roost and you know if, if you're misbehaving and you're going into a territory that's not yours um, you, you get a rap on the knuckles that's the that's the, the trust of politics um, myself and Owen Murphy have never had a falling out not that I remember anyway and um, <laughs> but you did you however, <laughs> however both campaign managers have at, on occasion have had words but that's the way it. that's, that's what happens um, but We'd see it as um, the two of us, we want two seats for Fine Gael in the constituency and um, by fighting amongst ourselves isn't going to do that cause any good. So, you know, it's it's worked out for Owen. I mean, the fact that I took a seat probably helped him in his career progression. Mm. So, you know. Um, how many staff do you have to help you on the day-to-day? -day? Two. Two. 
two. Um, so you get a parliamentary assistant and a secretarial assistant. Um, and we would always have transition year students in mm. as well. Um, I've always had them in my business and I like having them in the office. Um, we do a huge amount of um, work in our office on things that we probably shouldn't even be involved in. So two staff isn't enough for me um, for the amount of work output we have. So we depend on volunteers and students at a transition year or um, undergrads to come in and volunteer their time, stuffing envelopes, binding documents, transcribing just things. Um, I'm not sure if other people operate their offices like that. Mm. Um, I basically went into Leinster House, carte blanche, you know, just sort of, I do it my own way. <laughs> and I run it like it's my business. Yeah. And I'm not really sure what goes on in other people's offices. And I don't actually care yeah, either. It works for you. It works, works for, for you. me. Yeah. The output is good. The results are good. And um, people seem to be happy, yeah. you know, the constituents seem to be happy with the response. So. And so with your days being so busy and like having all this, it seems like there's a lot of buzz in your in your office when you're getting all this work done. One word for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do, you, do you find you ever have time to just like think at a more higher level about political ideology in general or any, anything more conceptually? Or is it so about the day to day and the nitty gritty that it's hard to find time? I don't sleep kinda... much. Um, so... <laughs> Um, I think after midnight. <laughs> so the... my husband never goes, he, he's never up past midnight and I'm never in bed before midnight. Right. So when I get everybody in bed, I probably would think for an hour about things and I consider the day. Sometimes I just look like, look at X on a beach and don't do anything you know, on the telly. <laughs> That's important too. <laughs> but um, depending on how, what my mind is like that night, but often... And then I would sit with my iPad and if I had sort of notions or ideas about things, I would type up the stream of consciousness and mm. I would then discuss it with my PA the next day and she'd be like, that's mad. <laughs> Delete it. That's mad. Or, God, that's great. Let's go with this. Yeah. So that's really how it works. And I kind of use Mondays. I call Mondays maintenance Monday. Monday is, <laughs> I'm good looking at the grey hair in my head, but Monday's like, make sure that last week's work is done. Make sure this week's work is ready. Make sure hair is not falling out. Make sure um, eyebrows are done. Make sure washing is done and have clean clothes for the week. Because like, if you go into Tuesday morning and you have the laundry done, there's no laundry being done till Friday. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. maintenance Monday has to happen. And, and when maintenance Monday doesn't happen, the week never goes well. Because you're you're on the back foot all week, mm -hmm. um, so um, look, it's just a it's a way of life. Mm -hmm. You mentioned having to get the hair done and making sure the eyebrows are right, and I don't want to say that that's necessarily going to be a problem just being a female politician because there's quite a few male members of the up and coming. Oh, only for team. men in the recession, I would have no business. So <laughs> I'm all for male maintenance, and um, I'm not high maintenance now. No, before you start, I think I spent all Mondays doing eyebrows and hair. <laughs> but do you think, um, is it more difficult being a female politician? No. No. Just no. straight no? Straight no. Okay. Not, not, a, not a, I mean, politician as in TD or senator. I, being a, at other levels, perhaps, I, I don't think there's any difference in the way you have to dress yourself mm. or any of that. Um, I think men have the same. They want to look well if they're presentable. They want to have a good suit on them. Um, obviously, some people have, um, both men and women, as may not have the same view on that. But um, I don't think see it as being any different. 
Might be able to run as fast in the heels, but it's fine. <laughs> the <men. That's> it. <laughs> yes. But then even on the more broader gender issue, like, I mean, this is the year of hashtag Me Too and the Harvey Weinstein and all that. Is that, does that dynamic ever come into it, have you found? Well, for me, no. Um, I, I suppose part of me would argue that any woman that has especially who's involved in party politics and has managed to be selected and elected mm. um, generally wouldn't be shrinking violets, generally be well able to stand up for themselves. Um, I would say that because of the male-dominated nature of politics up to now, now we were at 22% women in Leinster House, we were at 16%. It's still less than a quarter, mm. which even visually in a room, it's very few women. Um, there are some sort of um, historic, um, perhaps, ideas about women amongst some men. Um, but it's not necessarily, you know, somebody said to me last week, what was the outlets? Well, I mean, there's plenty of more senior politicians in Leinster House that are not one bit sexist. So it's not necessarily an age thing. Yeah. I think perhaps it's a combination there's probably an algorithm in it somewhere. But, you know, where you have what you've been exposed to in your personal life, what your work experience is beforehand. Mm. Like if you went into politics at 18 and you knew no different, well, then you'd never gone into the real world and realise that, you know, you can't say X, Y or Z to man or woman in a job. But there are sort of, I call it sometimes the basal level of sexism that that's, that exists at times. But... um it's still there to a point. But I mean, no one's bullied me ever in politics. Anybody um, that I've had a stand up um, and I've had plenty of them and plenty of debates on one to one basis and plenty of difference of opinions, especially with the Eighth Amendment which causes war. Mm -hmm. But any time I've made my points, I've never, ever had any male politician go, do you know, what would you know about it, lovely, or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? I've never had that at yeah. all. Not but then that's not to say it doesn't happen to other people. Yeah. Um, you know. You did have one run in, actually, and there's a tie to this show because of that. We mentioned that we had Tara Flynn on and just before she, we started recording, she was in the studio before us. She was reading a tweet that she had ignored for a couple of weeks that was sent to her by Barry Walsh. And just that week later, you came in to, I think it was the Fine Gael Parliamentary mm. meeting, to point out that he had been misbehaving very badly on Twitter. And um, it was actually, it ended up that I think Regina Doherty apologised to Tara Flynn on behalf of the party. Mm. Um, I just thought that was something to mention anyway. Yeah, the yeah the I mean, that was, I suppose, yeah, it was never about me that. That was about... Somebody. But he did was, say something nasty about you, but you were like, "This is in the broader context of him just being horrendous online." It was actually there was there was there was this repetitive sequence of anti-woman commentary mm. for a protracted length of time. It wasn't just a few pints on a Saturday night and being in a bad bad form with some woman somewhere. Yeah, it was public consistent. Yeah. yeah, and um, and like that, lots of people are like that on Twitter. But this gentleman sat in our national executive. He would have been involved in disciplinary hearings, and like that, I don't know. I don't know how it didn't seem to be well known that there was this was going on, even though he tweets about all sorts of people, and um, Tara Flynn included. So I just felt I, I I just felt that something had to be done. Um, I 
to me, that behaviour wasn't representative of what I see in Fine Gael. And I knew that people um, in Fine Gael, when it was put in front of them in black and white, would be horrified. I felt I went into a meeting and said, there's this lad and he's saying these awful things about Tara Flynn or whoever. First I'm like, who's Tara Flynn? <laughs> who's whatever? What's Twitter? Whatever. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, I just felt if I just gave, here you go, this is the evidence. Yeah. Deal with it. And like that, we dealt with it, or the party, I, we, the party dealt with it um, very efficiently. Um, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not privy to what happened exactly, but... Um, the gentleman in question is no longer on the national executive. Mm-hmm. So he's not involved in that process. Um, and um, that was really my aim, that he wouldn't be involved on an executive level within Fine Gael. I think it's um, that and all the other amazing things that you've been doing in the couple of years that you've been a TD that made me more than willing to last you on. And just to say, when I was talking about the start, when we started the show, I didn't think it was going to be worthwhile to ask politicians on because politicians for me sometimes are the worst part about politics. And um, when you watch them on the news or you hear them on the radio, most of the time, not all the time, you get sound bites and the same repetitive drivel, refusing to answer the questions, just giving you the same sound bites. And granted, it is changing with some politicians, unfortunately, but true, Trump, um, Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and other people are becoming more savvy that you have to be more authentic. I think that when you see politicians like yourself who are willing to stand up for the things that they genuinely think are wrong and they want to fix, um, like you say, you think politics is just making people's life better. I think when we find those kind of politicians, you need to call them out, say, yeah, okay, you do, like not all politicians are bad. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Instant reaction to politics shouldn't be the knee jerk. Oh, it's either boring or they're just in it for themselves. You have to look at it. You need to look at the people who are representing you and actually think about it, go and vote for the good ones. Mm. And then we're not just going to have the same problems again and again. Yeah. Hopefully. The, you just saying politics about making people's lives better. I was like, oh, I never even had that revelation. All the times you talk about politics, like that, I never. Oh shit, that should have been episode number one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, but that, that was my honest, honest to God thought. It's like that should have been the, the initial thing. But it was so nice to hear, especially from professional politician. And again, especially considering what I said at the start, I found all politicians very scary. <laughs> but it's not. It is nice to have these very frank conversations and a conversation that doesn't feel like a PR spin. I think. I think when when the public are listening, I think public are very savvy now, and, and also media is so accessible. Yeah. That it used to work the sound bites, the learnt off stuff, mm. because nobody was listening. But <laughs> now people are listening, and it even from searching documents, you'll see, my God, that lad said that thing 15 times this week. Yeah. You know what I mean? And Have you seen Ed Miliband's new podcast? It's been going for about six or seven months. Reasons to be cheerful. He's actually one of the most charismatic, funny, intelligent, articulate yeah. UK politicians <laughs> I've ever seen. And roll that back to two years ago when they they played an interview with him on ITV where he answered the same question with the same answer four times. Mm. I was like, what, where was that personality when you were yeah. the leader of the opposition and potentially the next prime minister? It's lot because it's long form. He has the the, the the time and the effort to like actually just articulate himself in a way that's not all soundbitey. He talks himself on the podcast. He makes reference when they because they, his co-host jabs him all the time about what yeah. a crap politician he was when he was <laughs> yeah. in the spotlight and he does say I was told to do that by the back office people mm. and I think he has learned the lesson that you yeah. can't get away with that anymore yeah. yeah I think that authenticity is probably the most important thing I think now um, and to be relatable mm. and genuine not like you can't you can't feign it you can't pretend to be authentic I don't think mm. now it catches you out because the odd time you say the wrong word and it's misconstrued mm-hmm. by people who are just trying to 
do that to you. Mm-hmm. But you just roll over and you don't worry about it. And, you know, just, I don't worry about things. I I constantly say to colleagues when they're stressing out, you control the controllables. And if you worry about things that you can't control, the only person affected by it is yourself. The person you actually want to affect is laughing away. You're the one stressed out lying in your bed at night. So I don't lose sleep over politics um, unless I'm actually up working. Um, I don't worry about things like that. Um, I'm very lucky to have um, my sister working with me. I have another sister involved in politics. My parents, because of the upbringing, I listened to my father for half an hour the other night telling me about don't be trusting the Brits. <laughs> and I had to listen from 19, I don't know what, to the present day. And he said, are you writing this down? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't writing it down. And, um, and I'm there going, oh, jeepers. But that dimension of his, his way, I'm mean, nearly 80, but that brings a certain sort of, okay, realism mm. to the situation. I'm not saying he's right, you know. Thank Should God I I, listen to Of course the Brits? I trust the Brits. I was there for good loads of years. I was every year, worked in the NHS. But um, just bringing that, all those different perspectives and trying to, I suppose, to make you who you are, you know. Yeah. Perfect. Do your best. Do your best, exactly. We're going to finish off with a big question. It's mm. going to be a fun one, Goodness. though. Yeah. If you were the Taoiseach <laughs> and <laughs> you had a huge heap of political capital. Now, we have three examples as to what might give you this political capital. So we'll give them first before you answer the question. Hmm. Um, you either won the Eurovision, like yourself. Personally. Personally. Yeah. Well, Taoiseach for Ireland. Well, we, we, don't, we don't know. Okay. This is possible. Um, so you, you might have stopped Dublin from winning the All-Ireland in football, but you actually helped Dublin win the All-Ireland in hurling. So that gave okay. you a huge amount of capital. Mm. Um, and you are you also personally ensured that the Googles and the Facebooks stay in Ireland forever and pay their taxes. One of those three things has happened. You can now do anything you want as Taoiseach. What do you want to do? Um, repeal the eighth. End di- direct provision properly, imme- immediately and properly. And um, address what I would consider a grave injustice that's been done to those people that are ended up in those places for the last 15 years and then the national maternity strategy to be the focus of healthcare now and for the next few years again to address all the neglect and the wrong that has been done because women's health has always been secondary to every other form of healthcare in this country and we're paying the price of it now. Well, all you got to do is win the Eurovision. And That's it. Them. So that first. And I have then. to do a duet with Hildegard. <laughs> <laughs> I have to just do the, the, the triangle money. beside her or something <laughs> and pretend I wrote the song. <laughs> it's, it's, it would basically be my lovely horse. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it would be my lovely heart. <laughs> Excellent. I think that's a good a good place as any to end it. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. On. This yeah. has been brilliant. And You're I'm no longer scared welcome. of politicians. So <laughs> Hopefully that's not going to end up being a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just want to get to the on my way. Yeah. <laughs> and you meet the scariest one. You're like, oh no. <laughs> Who is the scariest politician? We can take the answer off air if you want. <laughs> oh God, no. <laughs> Somebody would say it was me, but that's because that's totally not true. <laughs> No, we don't think it's true and I don't think the listeners after listening No, to not, at all, not at all no. Thanks very much Thank, Thank you. you, you're welcome Thank you This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network